We have a few questions that have been written down and then we can also respond to other people's questions. I mean, it's all encompassing. It's a whole Dhamma talking stuff. They all weekend retreats, basically. <laughs> like, we do all retreat on each of these questions. Okay. Oh, this one you've already answered. Oh, was it? What's it like to hang with the Dalai Lama all the time? Wow. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> all right. Well, this was on top. Please talk about about the idea of self. What is it that reincarnates? <clears throat> Just to, to talk about, uh, to start this, when we talk about ourself, uh, me and mine, we can still use conventional language, but at the same time, bring awareness to all the things that we identify with and realize Every time we, we say, you know, my bowl, my bag, my mother, my friend, my hermitage, then there's potential there for de- uh, gradually developing a sense of self around the identification with all of these things. Now, a very strong sense of self will tend to lead to more overt suffering more refined identification with mental states, people, things, belongings, will uh, be more subtle, but there'll still be uh, uh, the pain of of separation, the pain of impermanence. The term reincarnation we tend to avoid in the Theravada tradition because it implies that there is something that is uh, passed from life to life. And this was specifically what the Buddha was avoiding in his teachings of anatta, in non-self. <clears throat> well, at the time of the Buddha, there was the idea that even amongst the great variety of uh, philosophies and ascetic practitioners, there was the idea that uh, once you discover the true self, then then that will have the ability to um, create a, a permanent, la- lasting happiness. And the more advanced yogis could see that, well, it's not our physical body, right, that comes and goes, constantly changing, you know, even though we identify with it uh, as this being me and mine. Um, that's not that. It's not our moods and our emotions, our thoughts, you know, coming and going, uh, changing all the time. But somewhere uh, behind all of that or within all of that, Uh, uh, is it consciousness, some subtle form of consciousness that is our true self. And then if we discover that, that is a thing then will unite with the the universe, however uh, the different traditions would conceive it. And it's precisely the, you know, what makes the Buddha's teaching unique is that he said there is no place that you will find uh, a lasting sense of self. 
there is the conventional self that is derived from identification with the things, both internally and externally. But beyond that, there is uh, nothing. And it's the belief in that, or the view around that, which ultimately holds us in, into the round of, of what we term rebirth. So there's nothing that goes from life to life, but there is a continuity. You know, even within one life, living right now, we can see uh, this body and mind is not the same as it was yesterday, and yet it is based on the causes and conditions from yesterday and the day before that and the years before that. So this history, this gradual flow, kind of leads us up to the present. Right? So, and however we react to this moment, this day, that will literally create our future and onwards, you know, and it gradually flows on. So there, is, there are actions, there is speech, uh, there are thoughts, being, decisions being made, but there is no person or being behind all of that process. And so when the physical body dies, when the elements of the body disperse and go back to nature, there is still a mental momentum. There's still momentum uh, based on identification, based on the desire to exist, and that will carry on the stream of consciousness to reunite with more physical matter. And this is how, typically, we understand the process of rebirth in the Theravada tradition. Yeah, and that's, that's it's interesting when Achan says, you know, there's a continuum on top of which we label and think of ourselves as something independent, partless, permanent, right? Like there's a real me in there somewhere findable, right? And then, oh, my body and mind are changing, but apart from that is some me in there. And then when you go looking for that, you're like, what is me apart from this continuum of body and mind that's changing all the time? So just like our bodies and minds have changed so much from 24 hours ago, but there's still a basis that we can validly, conventionally say, Achan Chandiko, Tenzin Choki, but everything about our body and mind, like we've gone through so many changes since then. And sometimes I think of, you know, death, we feel like death is so significant, but we're dying and being reborn every nanosecond. And death is just a bigger shift of karma. But we're having those shifts all the time. It's like the Tenzin Choki of yesterday doesn't exist anymore. And then at a certain point, I'll, this gross physical body will quit breathing, but some continuum will carry on just like it did between yesterday and today. You know, But it's just our, our wrong view that says, oh my God, then Tenzin Choki will cease to exist. Well, she never really existed. It's just imputed on top of a process. So in Buddhism, when we meditate on selflessness, one of the ways I think of it is just getting more used to the idea of self as process rather than concrete, fixed entity. You know, the way it sort of feels like it is existing in there somewhere. But we conventionally still exist. You're all not just part of my collective hallucination. You know, we all do have a self that does exist in Buddhism. How do you know that for sure? Yeah, well... (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Buddha said so. (laughs) You know, but it's it's not denying that there's a self that does exist, but then it's denying the wrong way that it feels to us that the self does exist. That's what Buddhism really denies. 
but it's a long story. What is the difference in the way lay practitioners would seek enlightenment and the definition of enlightenment in the two traditions? And we talked about that, kind of the definition of enlightenment a little bit earlier, right? This difference between, you know, liberation and enlightenment, whereas in the Theravada tradition, it's a little bit more synonymous. And the, you know, sometimes... People, this is one of the views of monastics is that somehow we're better or you're allowed to be a monk or a nun when you already have really high levels of realization or something like that. It's basically a lifestyle choice. And for us, you know, in terms of practice, we have a lot more ethical guidelines when we're monastics, you know, the voluntary simplicity. I mean, a lot of it has to do with simplicity, which then just really supports our meditation practice in a unique way. But the path to enlightenment isn't really different for monks and nuns and and lay people. I had a friend uh, when I first started studying Buddhism, an Australian monk, and he said, people think we're somehow advanced he goes we're actually weaker we need the vows to protect our minds you know so that's one way of looking at it. I don't know. not Achan I need the vows to protect my mind but in terms of like the the path itself and the realizations on the path you know we don't say oh there's the monastic kind of path in realizations and the lay path in realizations it's a you know to my mind it's a lifestyle that Lord Buddha designed to support your practice. We live simply. It's like I get up, I put on my clothes. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to look in the mirror and fix my hair. You know, it's a lifestyle that really supports that path of focus. But apart from that, it kind of creates a really conducive container. But apart from that, the realizations of lay people and monastics along the path, you know, we don't really differentiate there. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, it's, as you mentioned, it, the, the practice and the realizations, uh, the end result, are the same. Uh, people are people. Uh, a mind unfolds in a particular way. Now, the Buddha, as far as I know, was the first who created the the monastic institutions, large mm-hmm. institutions, which specifically created a way of life in order to support that. Right? So theoretically, if, if we were um, independently wealthy, money wasn't uh, an object. We could set up uh, a situation where we lived in the hills and, never, and could practice all the time. Mm. The reality for most people isn't like that, and so then just the the, the daily responsibilities um, to do what is necessary in order to support you know our lives can take up a lot of time, can take up a lot of energy, uh, can be very tiring, and then and then even for people who are very dedicated, by the by the end of the day, you think, oh, you know, I'll meditate, and then we just fall asleep because we're so tired, right? So theoretically, monastic life is designed so that we have more time. But it's not just that, mm-hmm. right? It's not like um, we just go up into the hills and have a hut and then we have more time. It's, 
you know, the monastic institution is designed to thwart our desires. Mm-hmm. Anyone who thinks they want to be a monk and a nun uh, just so they can be peaceful all the time should really... Try uh, it. You should re- yeah. <laughs> well, should, should really challenge that uh, inaccurate perception because... <clears throat> Monastic, Sorry. Mona- <laughs> har, har, har. Monastic, <laughs> monastic life is specifically designed to thwart our desires or to make them conscious to us. So it's, it's not like, you, oh, go to the monastery, just be like being on, on retreat all the time. Oh, it's, it's just like, you know, one of these spirit rocks retreats where everything's just laid on and everything's comfortable and peaceful. Um, no, you know, it's, it's not like <laughs> yeah. that. I mean, first of all, just the, the level of simplicity is challenging. Right? You don't have to do much other than uh, expose yourself to the natural temperature outside without much of a buffer. <laughs> and then, and, and, and just as, as simplification, yeah. then you, and stuff starts to come up. You know, it's much yeah. more physically, much more difficult. You have to be more, uh, have a lot of patience and endurance. And then if you live in a community, uh, you have all these other beings who you didn't choose to live with. It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to go on a monastery and I'm just going to choose the monks that I like to live with. Right? <laughs> and we're all going to be friends and go off into the mountain forest and we're going to practice and together. And besides, we're all enlightened, right? so like right? we're always going to get along. And uh, the reality is not like that. You get, you get really nice monks and nuns like Tenzin and I, and then you get a lot of really weirdos too. <laughs> Right? And, and, you know, some, or, or even the nice people, you know, they start off, some of their idiosyncrasies are so really cute in the beginning. It's kind of like a marriage, I guess. And then, but then after day, after day, after day, they're kind of doing this weird little thing. It's like, after a while, it's like, why do they do that? And, it's kind of, and, uh, and so just living with other people is a natural process of, uh, it just, it's like a mirror, you know, when you live mm-hmm. in a community, maybe you have 20 mirrors, and each, each individual will tend to mirror back something in us. Mm-hmm. And it's usually the thing that we have that we're not fully acknowledging. Sometimes it's a complete blind spot, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I can think of examples. I'm hesitant to mention any names. But, you know, it's like people who are like, complain about this person doing that, and they're like... Well, like, you know, seriously? you just described yourself. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly what you do. And so it, it takes a lot of integrity, but eventually, even the thickest of us, we tend to, to recognize, oh, wait a minute. You know, if I'm getting irritated by someone else, really, I have to take responsibility for that, and it comes back to us. That person is simply mirroring either quality I have or my reaction you know, and I have to take responsibility for that. So it's a, it's a very powerful way. Mm-hmm. You know, being in the monastery, everything just pulls you back to practicing the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, you could, you know, it doesn't, wear, it doesn't matter whether you're wearing uh, robes, uh, it doesn't matter how long your hair is, uh, it's, more, it's more the lifestyle, right? But it does make a difference when you walk down the street wearing robes. People react to you differently. Try walking through an airport uh, dressed like this, right? I mean, I've been doing it for almost 30 years now, so it's pretty normal. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people think I'm a kung fu master, so that works fine. (laughs) That works for me. And, uh, but, you know, initially, if you have any sense of, like, uh, self-consciousness, and you start walking around in public dressed like this, Mm -hmm it will tend to come to the surface. 
And, and that's good. It makes us reflect. Well, why, why have I intentionally separated myself from the mainstream? You know, what is my goal and vision in life that would cause me to do this? And you know, if you make peace with that, you realize, well, yeah, there's, there's nothing to be uh, self-conscious about. You know, this is the, the banner of the Arhats. This is, you know, yeah. this is the flying our, our, literally flying our freedom flag. <laughs> uh, flying our... Flying our, flag our of flag fly. fly, flying our flag of liberation <laughs> wrapped around us. So uh, everything, and just having robes, you know, means that Tenzin and I can't just, you know, decide, oh, can't we're going... Can't be anonymous. Yeah, I mean, we can't just kind of blend in and start doing something very unmonastic, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, no one will notice. No one will, no one will know. It's not like that. So it, just being dressed like this, uh, it creates, uh, you know, a level of self-reflection, um, introspection, you know, on so many different ways that forces us to always mm -hmm. be, you know, watching our minds, um, working on the, the things which are not yet enlightened. Yeah, and it's interesting to go around. I was thinking of Fabienne, the director of Vajrapani, who's also a close friend of Achan's, and she and I will often do outreach things together, go to some event on behalf of Vajrapani or be somewhere. And even though she's been around for so long, she's still so surprised at the reaction I get in public. And she's like, wow, everybody needs to like stop you on the sidewalk and talk to you. Like, you... And I, to me, I'm just so used to it. It's like, oh, right, that's like a thing that doesn't happen to you because you're wearing jeans and a T-shirt. You know, it's sort of that thing of like always being sort of public property. And I remember when I first got ordained, I realized if I was going somewhere, I needed to add on at least 20 minutes or half an hour just because I didn't want to like diss people if they came up to me with a sincere question or even just like, oh, is there a monastery around? Like, where do you come from? I didn't want to say, oh, I'm in, really in a hurry. I'm late for my dentist, sorry. Like I needed to, that was kind of part of what I felt like my responsibility going out in public in this like very visible billboard is just to be there for people. Now, if somebody comes up and starts telling me their life story starting with the Big Bang, I mean, I might get their phone number and say, look, I really don't have all that time right now, but like, let's get together or come to Vajrapani or something like that. But even just the small interactions of like, where do you live and is there a center? It just takes time, you know, so I always really try if I'm going to be in public and you know, international airports where we both spend a tremendous amount of time. I had one woman just came lunging up to me. I can't even remember which country it was. For a number of years, I was touring a lot. And she just didn't even say hi or greet me or anything. She just goes, why did you do that? <laughs> and I'm like, hi, my name's Tenzin. Like, how's it going? You know, I'm like, she's just like, you know, and she was sort of my age and maybe at this point of life of like, what did I do with my life? And did I wait? You know, I didn't know. I mean, we got into a conversation. <laughs> it was just like this... Why did you do that? And I was like, let's sit down and chat. You know, I've got 20 minutes. So it is, it's, it's interesting. And as Achan says, 
there's a <clears throat> tremendous responsibility that goes along with it. You can't just like shout at people <laughs> in public when they're in your way, or you know, not that either one of us ever would have done it's that. More. But like, there is a road thing rage that, is more embarrassing, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, when you're driving, it's like, you're that like, was a nun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't just kind of. You know, you're upset. You can't just kind of give, give the people, finger fling, and, yeah. people the finger out the window and say, oh, no, you know, I have to have a higher level of... <laughs> I have to higher level of behaviors. Yeah. May they be well. <laughs> As you they cut must, them off in traffic. They, they must be suffering. I'll do a little Tong right? Lin as I cut them off in traffic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the two of you in a vehicle, you driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not even precepts. That's just cultural. Yeah. It's just a cultural um, difference between Thailand and the Tibetan tradition. Yeah. And it's, it has nothing to do with the vinya or the monastic training. And mostly, I mean, in my condition, I live in a center full of lay people. It's not a monastic situation, so we don't have assistants or attendants or stewards or people to really help us. And everybody where I live has more than a full-time job. So, like, if I'm going somewhere, it's just more practical for me to drive myself than to ask somebody who already, you know what I mean, lives at the center to drive me to the prison for a day long, teaching there, drive me here. So it's just more out of practicality and just the, the constraints of logistics because I don't live in a monastery. You know, sometimes monasteries will have people that are volunteering there just to sort of look after the monastics and that's kind of a different situation than where I live. Did that evolve in the States? Use the mic, please. Is that um, the driving... Uh, evolved in the states, or is that something you mean actually driving uh, ourselves yeah. around? Yeah, and also you, the use of money. Yeah, yeah, and it's. Um, I think it's just. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know really. I mean, it's just something that we've done, and it's more of a thing of of. I think, like I said, just sort of practicalities of. You know, I, for example, for a long time, I traveled to teach kind of all over the world, rather than having the person pay the air ticket for two people, one person to kind of carry the change person, take care of me and, and me, you know, it's like, it's okay, you know, I do it. So it's more of an attitude, I keep an attitude of simplicity and then just for practicality deal with things a little bit different than the people in the Thai forest tradition. So yeah, as, the, as far as the, yeah, um, go ahead. Uh, the origins come back to the second council, yeah. which was held a couple of years after, a couple of hundreds of years after the, maybe a hundred years, about that time, after the Buddha passed away. And one of the first issues that came up in the Sangha, which began to divide the Sangha a bit, was can we hold, can we keep the donations personally that are offered to mm. us? Mm. Or it is, up to that point, everything had been communal. We're not allowed to ac accept money. But then, you know, this issue of people want to make donations specifically for this monk or this nun and can those be kept and that was a then a, a vinya question that kind of it's just one rule which was discussed but it tended to then create different lifestyles yeah if people were so the the entire mahayana 
than developed with the from that direction. I mean, not specifically because of that, but but with the idea that uh, uh, holding on to personal funds was mm. was acceptable. Right? Yeah, and, and, and our vow <coughs> doesn't say touching money. It says touching precious objects like gold and silver. So it's not specific. So it's a slightly different wording because our benign tradition is called the Mula Sarvastavadin and, and Achans is the Theravada. And so they're very similar. But And then the third one is the Dharma Guptaka, which is the Chinese tradition. But there are these slight differences between the three Vinaya traditions in terms of specific vows. So yeah. like ours is focused more on like you know, just, you know, Tiffany, amazing $5,000 object, you know, not to have that, but just plain money is more acceptable in our tradition. Yeah. The, it says the same thing in Pali, but the, the term gold and silver was the term for money at that yeah. time. So that's, yeah. that was the, so the differentiation the is... is uh, Oh, well, paper is not literally gold and silver, so yeah. then that's okay. Mm. Yeah. So I had a question about uh, diet. Um, I've struggled with the uh, idea in Buddhism that <clears throat> everyone's not vegan, mm. um, just because... Um, of all the suffering that goes on in 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 livestock and and all that, and but I've never really had my head wrapped around it either. The only thing I know is that the Buddha said that you shouldn't eat food that was specifically killed for you. So if you had your bowl out and somebody put um, chicken in there, you could eat the chicken because the chicken wasn't killed for you. But I was just wondering, in your different traditions, is there any guidance as far as diet and what you do, or is it, or, or what? Is my question. Yeah, and our tradition is very individual. Some people choose to be vegetarian. Some people choose to be vegan, um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, a lot of it is is just not even wanting to be involved, even indirectly in killing. I mean, nobody would say that it, like eating meat is not killing karma because you're not taking the life yourself. But some people, of course, choose. I don't want to be anywhere, even indirectly involved in that. Global economics is another issue, so a lot of people do choose. But I think uh, you know the the reason that Lord Buddha didn't mandate that is because that people begged for alms and so it was more important to just have an attitude of accepting whatever you were offered. Now you didn't have to eat it so all along there have been vegetarian monks and nuns. You're not allowed to refuse what's put in your bowl but you don't have to eat it so not everyone you know would would eat if there was meat in the bowl. But you know I agree and I think a lot of people are becoming much more conscious of all the ramifications of that and factory farming, I mean, quite apart from the killing karma, there's so much ethics that have to do with just cruelty and quality of life of the animals in factory farming. So I find more and more people are conscious of that, but I think that's why it's not mandated by the Buddha. And of course, the, there weren't factory farms in ancient India, so it wasn't an issue. But yeah, do you have something to Yeah, no, it's just yeah. pretty much the same. Um, Especially when you're an alms mendicant, and we're not 
making the choices of, of where our dollars are going in the supermarket, then it's more important to be grateful for anything that someone is offering. Uh, having said that, it's not incumbent upon us to, to eat whatever is offered to us, but um, we can still, when we give teachings, when people request teachings, when we're giving a talk, we can, we can talk about compassion to all beings, not just to human beings, but to animals as well. And then hopefully that filters down you know, into what people choose to eat themselves or to offer to us. I prefer to eat vegetarian food most of the time, um, but again, it, it's, not, it's not something that I want to hold to a, as a view. One of the initial uh, divisions in the Sangha in the time of the Buddha was the Buddha's cousin, Devadatta. And he tried to present himself as uh, more strict than the Buddha, and he wanted, he had the idea that it was going to be his destiny to, to, to be the leader, you mm. know, kind of get the Buddha out of the way, you know, and be the leader of the Sangha. And one of the, what he envisioned doing was to um, say, I want to, I want to make this mandatory for all of the Sangha. You know, all monks and nuns have to do this. And one of the conditions was um, being vegetarian. And for a number of reasons, the Buddha, he knew the Buddha couldn't agree to all that. So he, just said, he said, well, I'm going to create my own my own lineage then. And uh, he had a certain group of followers um, because he seemed more strict, right? He was the, the really strict one. Um, but for, you know, uh, it wasn't helpful, you know, just adopting that as a very mm -hmm. um, strict view that has to be like that. So it is, uh, I think it's something to be encouraged, you know, if everyone could reduce their meat intake that would save innumerable la lives of living mm -hmm. beings. Uh, also, just to be aware of, you know, do we know where our food is coming from? Do we know mm -hmm. where this meat is coming from? Mm -hmm. I mean, living in New Zealand, I'm in our area. We have green rolling hills and the cows and the goats and what they they're living a pretty good life for an animal mm -hmm. that is going to be raised for food. Right? E even as such, they have a short life, but they have a good life. Mm. Right? And so it, that's better. But if we know that the meat that we're potentially eating is, is coming from animals that were raised in horrid conditions, then we should really not, we should really steer clear of that. Mm. We don't want to support that. Mm. Yeah. Our, our the founder of my organization, which like I said is a, about 170 centers worldwide, Way back in like the late 70s, kind of mandated that all of our centers only serve vegetarian food. So like publicly, we only cook and serve vegetarian food in our centers, which is nice because then nobody really has to, you know, think about that or worry about that. Even though individuals then will go out and eat outside our centers and eat whatever they eat. But at least within the center, he said, you know, please only just cook and serve vegetarian food. Well, whenever I go out with some of the staff members it's all at Badrapani, they always, always go right to Burger 9 <laughs> and have a great big hamburger. <laughs> They're like starving <laughs> for meat. <laughs> Thank you very much. We just got a nice advertisement that our center serves delicious vegetarian food. Doesn't it, Anchan? <laughs> Every day. Every day. 
do we have other written ones? And yeah, maybe yeah. a couple tackle of that other. One? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Oh, God. <laughs> what? <laughs> Jeez. Thanks. Thanks, bud. <laughs> you want to ride home? Okay. <laughs> what is duality versus non duality? Is that a difference between the two traditions? And one thing is defining the terms, right, of what's meant by duality and non-duality, because I think they can mean really different things in Buddhism, and I'm not sure. Anybody want to be brave and let me know what you meant by duality and non-duality? If you're distinguishing between duality and non-duality, isn't that duality right there? Oh, zinger. One of the... Snap. Omnipresent mental factors is discernment. So it's okay to discern and define. Otherwise, we wouldn't know what's water, what's a bell. I mean, we have to have discernment, and it's an omnipresent mental factor. Zap. Zap. Snap. <laughs> but um, anybody want to clarify the question? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay, and like I said, they can mean so many different things philosophically that I'm not quite sure how to answer in a way that would be would be meaningful. Do you want to take a stab at it? Or well, I don't uh, know if it's more obvious. Yeah, as, essentially it comes back down to the sense of self, right? <clears throat> uh, if we're making differentiations, for example, between uh, me and somebody else, right? For example, that's, that we're creating um, uh, a, a conceptual uh, distinction which isn't there in reality. And we do that all the time. Even something mm-hmm. as simple as, you know, I see you, right? That, it, mm. with, it, we're just assuming that, it, even without thinking that consciously, uh, there'll be the idea that there is a being here, I, which I identify with, seeing you, which is different. Now, the actual reality is there is seeing, and there are, there are physical bodies here, but there's no one who is doing the seeing. Right? There are actions that are happening, but there's no one behind these actions. Right? So I'll, uh, the, the sense of self or identification will tend to regularly split things up and divide divide me from others, divide mm. uh, people in the room, divide classes of people, divide uh, humanity into races and ethnic groups and socioeconomic groups, and you know, it's always dividing, dividing. And the reality is uh, there's a fundamental level of unity. And uh, you know, confronting that, the origins of that, comes back down to the what we identify with is a sense of self. Mm. So, ultimately, both traditions, I mean, we're aiming mm. for realizing non-duality, but <clears throat> we, don't get, we don't become weird. You know, we're still able to... <laughs> function. Well, so, yeah, we're still able to function. We don't kind of say, uh, seeing... Seeing Tenzin Choki doing right, we can still say we can still say, "Hey, hey Tenzin, let's drive home." Right? <laughs> you know, I can I can still say <laughs> I can still say, "Oh, I didn't get much sleep last night." 
right? It, it's yeah. not a phys- a, like a philosophical statement of duality. <laughs> it's merely uh, conventional, conventional communication. <laughs> so, um, the, I mean, within our traditions, something, something like this, the scholars just love to go into in great detail and can come up with many, many different levels of differences between the traditions and, mm. and split hairs, whereas the, the, the yogis, the forest, the ajans, the masters, uh, they're pretty much on the same page mm-hmm. when it comes to non-duality. And did you have a... Yeah, go ahead. I'm curious from your years of experience with practitioners. Um, there's a report that came out recently on, on mindfulness and how um, with some folks who practice, they, they see the non-self as this kind of a... Um, an experience where they it's labeled like a negative experience where they're just kind of lost and this study I didn't read it but I heard about the the authors talking about the researchers um, that people want to be aware that these experiences can happen Mm. Even though mm. this, that's the path within Buddhism. But when people are learning, for example, mindfulness, they might have those experiences and mm. be very worried or scared. Mm. And I'm curious about, in, in your experiences about practitioners who've had that, that don't have that understanding and how, how that plays a role in, in their experiences. Mm. I have, yeah, I, I remember when I first started uh, studying and practicing Buddhism and at a, at a certain point I was in this 10-day retreat in Bodh Gaya and a woman, a young woman there had a meditative experience that just completely freaked her out. Like she just actually, she was French and it was just this whole thing that she really lost it completely and the French embassy had to like send somebody to get her. And I remember at that point thinking she didn't have refuge, she didn't have enough of a basis of like a safety net of how things do exist conventionally, validly, right? And refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha and enough of a philosophical understanding. We say that there's emptiness and then there's dependent arising and things do exist dependently on other factors and so, and, and with that understanding then you can go into you know, really looking at your false way of looking at how things exist and undermining that, but it doesn't leave you just devoid of any understanding of reality at all. And I think there is a danger sometimes that if people don't get really the basic teachings, and that's why in our, the Tibetan tradition especially, we say, we have a vow not to teach people emptiness before they have enough of a basic understanding of cause and effect, especially karma, and the Four Noble Truths and enough of a basis that in a way they can handle it. Because this is the danger. And I saw it myself when I first started out and I was like, wow, she didn't have a basis. She didn't have a foundation for that level of meditation. You know, so I think, like I said, in the Tibetan tradition, it's really emphasized 
Don't teach, don't go there in a way that's going to freak people out, going to scare them, going to make them think, oh, nothing exists. Oh my God, nothing exists at all. Cause and effect functions. And that's a basis of Buddhist teaching and it's really important to lay that foundation before going to the selflessness and the emptiness Mm -hmm. side. So that's the way we approach it in my tradition. Yeah, Yeah, you have to have some refuge, a place of safety, in order to feel comfortable and safe letting go of the things that we identify with. Letting, not even letting go of the things, but letting go of the identification. Then there has to be an alternative. And that's what refuge is all about. You know, we take, yeah. That's when refuges really become very powerful. It's like we're taking refuge in the, in the Buddha and, and the teachings and, and uh, <coughs> what, it, what it represents and the reality of, of an alternative so that we're, then, it, then it feels safe. You know, and it's really only when there's a, a whole lifestyle that gives us a very solid grounding, you know, that that, that, that should be brought up. I mean, mm-hmm. Westerners in particular mm. say, well, <clears throat> I don't want to waste my time with the beginner stuff. Yeah. I'm just going to do the advanced yeah. stuff. So go right, you know, just give me the highest teachings. Mm. So... Even if some teachers do that, you know, I mean, I think responsible teachers don't do that, but even if teachers do that, then um, they're not going to have a, a basis to mm-hmm. either to actually understand them deeply or they can get themselves in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, definitely. you know, very simple things like precepts, good, mm-hmm. good lifestyle, mm-hmm. and really samadhi. You know, once, yeah. when, if the mind is internally peaceful and you're able to find joy within our heart, then that, that becomes a, a place of safety, mm-hmm. a refuge. Mm-hmm. And then it feels okay to gradually let go of more and more. And, uh, and we have this mm-hmm. you know, deep feeling of groundedness and, and self-perpetuating happiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, it's also a question, so in other words, tell me if there's anything about this you disagree with. Um, when I hear questions about the ultimate nature of reality, uh, I think people are getting away from what the Buddha was trying to teach. Um, I don't think he was, I'm thinking, he wasn't trying to put the nature of reality under a microscope. Instead, he was looking at what causes our suffering. Mm-hmm. And, oh, people are attached to their self or their sense of self. That causes suffering, and that's what it's all about. But what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we say, you know, it, the ignorance about how the self exists, right? Holding on to this idea of a fixed, permanent, independent entity gives rise to all of the mental afflictions, attachment, aversion, and all the rest. So misperceiving the nature of reality gives rise to all of the mental afflictions, kleshas in Sanskrit, which then gives rise to all the negative karmic actions. So it's at the root of everything, that ignorance about how the self exists. It's so practical. It's not some highfalutin philosophical thing. It's like... Achan's been saying, like, just that wrong view about how we exist gives rise to every moment of suffering that we've ever had in all of our 
lifetime. So uprooting that isn't, isn't in any way separate from just where the rubber meets the road of how our suffering is caused and how it can be removed. You know, it's really at the root of that. Yeah. yeah. So if he's putting anything under a microscope, it's not physical reality, but our own personal psychological realities? Well, I think, you know, we, in my tradition we say our misperception is really um, mistaking our conceptual imputation for reality. So it's like we create, oh boy, this is really complicated, how many minutes? <laughs> I've got like ten minutes. Yeah, it's, it's not any kind of physical deconstruction, it's just really looking at our concepts that we impute onto the things around us and that then from that moment on we're believing in and relating to our concepts which can sometimes be distorted rather than reality itself. But it's a long story, yeah. Now, yeah. John, does this jibe with... Can I respond to that? Yeah. Yeah, so just, uh, it's, it's very important just to keep it real <clears throat> with practice. When I... When we first started getting good English translations of the Pali suttas, I would read, th read through them and was just always impressed at how down-to-earth the Buddha was. Right? I mean, as profound as the Dhamma is, the actual mm -hmm. teachings on a daily basis, so down-to-earth, right? to, in order to just create the foundation you know, that's going to lead mm -hmm. to realizations. And he was... You know, nothing was too small for him to, to pay attention to and mm -hmm. to point it out to the community. And in Thailand, if you go, you know, you go to typically like uh, the Westerners who would go to Thailand, we tended to be more highly educated. And we, we'd go and, and we'll want to go see a master and ask an intelligent question. Right? Uh, mm. And... Any any time that we asked anything that was a bit too theoretical, mm -hmm. right? especially if you asked something, what's the nature of enlightenment, right? or or even just the nature of of something that was beyond where we were currently, they're likely just to go, Ugh. <laughs> you know, they just kind of grunt and groan and say, uh, you know, and just say, <clears throat> just go wash the spittoons, but do it with full awareness. Right? <laughs> yeah. This is what needs to be done right now. Here's my spittoon. Wash it with full awareness, right? And and even that's hard to do, you know, just without the mind being distracted, and just that becomes your meditation object, one action at a time. So mm -hmm. just really keeping it very down to earth uh, and grounded mm -hmm. is essential. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we've got one more, we've got... Whoop. Oh, I thought it was four. Oh. I thought it was four. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th I thought it was four. Oh, everybody else thought it was four, too. So we should probably end at four, because maybe people have made plans around that. Yeah, <laughs> all right. All right, last question, and then we're going to wrap up. When working on compassion, how do you keep witnessing... Someone's suffering, how do you keep witnessing someone's suffering from affecting you emotionally and physically? Yeah, that's a great question, right? Because one of the things about compassion, loving kindness is easy. Wishing others to have happiness, that's fun. 
and easy. Compassion involves perceiving others' suffering, right? So that's why sometimes it can be quite difficult and, you know, overwhelming for us to keep open to others' compassion. What's helped me? I'll just, I'll just share in my own experience. I think for me, like Buddhism helped me so much stay open because this idea that we've been talking about that things are a result of causes and conditions. They're not inherently existent. They don't exist from their own side. So any situation of suffering is a product of causes and conditions. Therefore, if the causes and conditions change, that suffering can be eliminated. And that really helps. And I look of... I look at situations in my own life because I think what's overwhelming to us is just feeling like, oh my God, it's just going to be like this forever. It's just this permanent concrete situation that there's never going to be any change. And of course, you know, how can you face that? But realizing, okay, wow, this is totally happening. It's a result of causes and conditions. It can change. I can tune into it stay open to it, meditate with it, and do whatever I can to change the causes and conditions and put my energy in there. And I think, like for me at my age, I think I've seen enough of these situations. I think of examples like when I was growing up, you know, in the 60s in the Cold War, we used to hide under our desks. Remember that, you guys? Who are my age? Like the Soviet Union was just this monolithic, like the Cold War. It seemed so self-existent, didn't it? That it was just always going to be like this. And then it just sort of imploded from the inside. And suddenly, all of a sudden, the Berlin Wall's coming down and the Iron Curtain, and you're like, wow, what happened? Or apartheid. I mean, I spent the decades of the 80s marching, you know, And then suddenly Nelson Mandela's president. I mean, it's not suddenly, it was a process. But even these things that seem so kind of solid and monolithic and concrete, causes and conditions change and the whole situation changes. So sometimes when I feel, you know, the refugee crisis, whatever it is that's in our face, or just a person, I think of these examples and I go, wow, like these major changes can happen just because everything is a product. And so if the causes and conditions change and hopefully my energy in there, caring, can be part of the mix and part of the causes and conditions that can help it change. But that's what really helps me. Some I've got friends that are psychologists and they say, I have one friend that says it's not, you know, there's this phrase, compassion burnout. And she goes, it's not really compassion burnout. She goes, it's empathic distress is really what it is, that feeling of like, I can't stay open. She goes, it's when your empathy to a situation, instead of causing you to have empathic resonance with a situation, leads to this feeling of distress. And for me, just the teachings on causation in Buddhism has really helped me a lot to not go into that empathic distress. This is why we teach compassion and wisdom, not yeah. just compassion, right. because if it was only compassion, then uh, compassion is about opening our heart to the pain and suffering and difficulties of others, you know, feeling that. But at the same time, if we start to suffer as a result, then we're not doing it right, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, com- compassion itself doesn't lead to burnout, but it's, it's when our wisdom isn't strong enough. I mean, all of us start with with kind of some compassion and some wisdom, but if our compassion goes, if our empathy it becomes too open, 
without mm-hmm. the wisdom kind of catching mm-hmm. up or balancing out, then, then yeah, we're going to start experiencing burnout. We have, we go beyond our boundaries physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. So then it's important to, to bring that back into balance, mm-hmm. right? Right? I mean, the opposite is true. Well, if, is, if wisdom becomes out of balance, then mm-hmm. one can become a bit dry-hearted or uh, insensitive. Mm-hmm. Huh? So mm-hmm. having them in balance uh, means that we can be open-hearted, sensitive, but at the same time not be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Right? As mm-hmm. soon as we become overwhelmed by the suffering of the world, which is pretty much mm-hmm. boundless, then we're not going to be very effective mm-hmm. in achieving a result. All right. So thank you all so much for coming and hanging out with us today. That was super fun. Thank you for all of your great questions. And thank you to Steve and Sue for taking such good care of us and Betsy for getting us the fabulous coffee to make us (laughs) get us through the afternoon and charge us up. Do you want to, do you have dedication verses? Do you want to dedicate? Go on got that nice poly thing going on. <laughs> I love poly yeah. chanting. I have to say, I like poly a lot more than I like Tibetan, so I was made a closet, a closet poly chanter. <laughs> Don't tell. Don't, <laughs> right. Don't. This is just between us and whoever <laughs> listens to the tape. Should have said that after I turned the mic off. <laughs> Do you know the Metta Sutta in English? I could probably um, follow along. You've heard Half it a, a number be- of times. Yeah, I've heard it a number of times. Yeah. I might, yeah, I think I might be able to mm. fake it. I'll turn the mic off, though, just in case my faking takes over from your... (laughs) (laughs) This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. Humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature, Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great and the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, 
may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to wrong views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world.